Today's episode of Invisible Capital is sponsored by Ansarada. Since 2005, Ansarada has been trusted on over 23,000 transactions, including M&A, capital raises, divestments, restructures, and IPOs. The new Ansarada Deals smashes the benchmark in deal technology. The secure deal space includes project management tools, AI-powered data rooms, collaborative Q&A, and integration frameworks. It's more than a virtual data room. It's a total transaction management solution across the full deal lifecycle. Start for free at Ansarada.com. Hello and welcome back to PitchBook's Invisible Capital, a podcast dedicated to exploring the inner workings of the private markets. I'm Adam Lewis, a reporter for PitchBook News, and for today's show, we're going to explore recent developments within the U.S. startup ecosystem with James Thorne, our venture capital reporter here at PitchBook. James, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Adam. Thanks for having me. Now, obviously, the startup ecosystem is an enormously broad space, so we're going to focus on a few key areas. Uh, James, you've been covering VC closely for the last year plus uh, with COVID looming over any news within the industry. We recently hosted a conversation with Rohit Aragavarapu from Technology Crossover Ventures, and I was struck by this comment he made about the impact COVID has had on startups. I would say if there's one thing that has surprised us more than anything else, it's that a lot of the pattern recognition from crises past has just been thrown out the window. Uh, and this has been idiosyncratic across where the company or the buyer you sell to matters as much as the category that you're in. Uh, and the form factor of your product matters as much uh, as either of those other factors. Uh, and so really, it's about you know, where uh, your customers were, if I had to think, you know, point it to one thing, where your customers were in sort of their digital transformation journey. You know, we heard of a large cruise line, for example, that spent nearly half a million dollars on an automation technology uh, at a time when they had zero bookings early in the pandemic. And so uh, you know, the four kind of categories as an overlay to that that, that I've seen are uh, you know, first, there have been kind of COVID beneficiaries, and those are you know, folks in telemedicine, last mile delivery, uh, a number of e-commerce related uh, startups, uh, and then folks who help facilitate virtual selling, uh, sales and marketing. Most of the impact for the second bucket of good businesses that were kind of slowed by COVID uh, has been on the new booking side. And what's really telling there is as we look across our portfolio and, and sort of companies we talk to that fit into this bucket, uh, many of them are saying that a lot of this is reversing and, and Q4 is slated to be one of the best quarters from a new booking side uh, perspective that, that they've ever had. The third bucket of companies that we've seen have been sort of center of the bullseye is what I describe it as. It's, it's a lot of companies in, in travel technology, for example, with the notable exception of, of Airbnb, as you mentioned, and, and pockets of, of sectors like restaurant and retail, where just the macro challenges have kind of overwhelmed uh, you know, the ability of the software to drive efficiency and, and gains. Uh, and at some level, the, the, the lack of health in the customer base has also really hurt startups. And then the last are companies, you know, across a number of categories, business models who have had some underlying issues before COVID and COVID was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And uh, there have fortunately not been many of those, which is something I want to talk about in a second, but there have been some. And really, it's been about, uh, you know, your ability to execute uh, against a competitive landscape that's moving really quickly. Uh, And if you had technology debt or you were on the wrong side of some underlying trends in terms of the move to the cloud, for example, uh, you know, it's been it's been pretty challenging uh, to, to, to succeed. Now, James, obviously, there was a lot to unpack there, but I'm wondering how that breakdown compares with your own reporting. 
Yeah, I think it's safe to say that a lot of the assumptions that we made heading into the crisis turned out to be wrong. You know, we kicked off more than a year ago uh, with Sequoia issuing their black swan letter, putting everyone on notice. You know, fast forward to the end of 2020, we set records across the ecosystem. You know, we had exit value higher than it's ever been. Same story with the amount raised by startups, the amount raised by VC funds. And so far this year, you know, the, the momentum has just, you know, kept going. I, I still regularly come across companies uh, on the platform that have, are raising mega rounds now that had applied for PPP loans, you know, less than a year ago. And to me, I think that's a sign that very few businesses had a good idea of how this pandemic was going to affect their business, uh, let alone the economy at large. And, and, you know, one thing that I hear over and over again is that, you know, when the pandemic hit small, medium-sized businesses all the way up to large corporations, they wanted to upgrade their software. They needed a way to transact with their customers really seamlessly without really being able to meet them in person. And, you know, we've seen that kind of across the industry, like this acceleration of technology has really been a benefit to, you know, maybe not all the ecosystem, but but a really large chunk of it. Yeah, you said that, you made, you raised a really good point right there, uh, where you said that, you know, companies were applying for PPP loans last year, and now they're raising mega rounds, which is, I mean, how much, how much is a mega round are we talking here? 100 million or more. Right. By pitch book definition, I mean... Is that even legal? Like that, that seems crazy to me that they were applying for, you know, government help within the last 12 months. And now they're, you know, flush with yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars from uh, venture capital investors. Yeah. I mean, I'll leave that to, uh, to the taxpayers to decide, you know, <laughs> how they feel about that. But, um, but, but it, it does kind of speak to the nature of that program, which was, you know, it was, a, it was an emergency funding round. They wanted businesses to take advantage of it. They didn't want to see layoffs. And the fact of the matter is, because there was so much uncertainty, we would have seen a lot more layoffs had that program not been implemented. You mm. know, whether or not some of that money should now be returned that, that they've, they've posted record growth for the past year. Yeah. Eh. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the NVCA will be, will be busy <laughs> over this next uh, year or so. But uh, one, one industry that I'm not sure if Rohit mentioned, but that you've written some about is fintech, which we've really seen, I guess, explode over the last year or even going back even before the pandemic, but it seems like the pandemic accelerated kind of the, the push toward fintech. Is that, is that what you saw with your reporting? You know, it's funny, just a couple of year, years ago, our colleague, Josh, wrote an article, where are all the fintech IPOs? And it was kind of this, this, this open question, you know, what, when, were, when were these fintech companies going to like, you know, hit it big and, and make it on the public stage? Well, we just had Coinbase, the first, uh, first uh, cryptocurrency company to, to go public. Um, and, you know, we've seen just incredible growth out of companies that are in this, what, what's being called embedded finance. So, so take Plaid, you know, we all know Plaid was going to be bought by Visa for 5.3 billion, a little more than a year ago. Now they've broken off that deal. They've got a new round of investment that values them at 13.4 billion. It's an incredible jump in just a year. And, you know, Plaid is one of many kind of infrastructure providers in this world of fintech. And, and it's kind of actually hard to get your head around, like how ubiquitous they've become because you, you never hear of them. You never see them. But you're kind of, you know, I use Mint. I'm transacting with them all the time. They have access to all this very private data or, or mm -hmm. not access to it directly. But, you know, they're able to connect my, my different banking accounts. Um, yeah. And it, it's, it's sort of this... Uh, it's, it's sort of this remarkable story. 
in, at, at a time when we thought that commerce was going to come to a halt, it just accelerated really, really quickly in, in online mm-hmm. payments and, and, you know, other online financial services. Yeah, I think I deleted Mint from my phone after seeing how much a month I spent on food during the pandemic. It was so staggering that I, that I couldn't live with myself and continue and continue checking it. Um, but yeah, another great app it is ubiquitous now along with, you know, Plaid and Stripe and, you know, even yeah. existing fintech companies like PayPal and, um, you know, you, you've just seen they're, they're, st- they're on the public side now, but obviously their stock prices has skyrocketed here over the last year. It's interesting you bring up Stripe and, and PayPal. Stripe's another one of these infrastructure providers. Um, you know, they're worth $95 billion now, which is just crazy for a private company. And, you know, I've been paying for things over Stripe for years without ever realizing it. And, and you know, I think one of the really cool things is that, you know, when a, when a company is using Stripe for their payments processing, you have no idea that it's it's really Stripe. A couple of weeks ago, uh, a report came out that Clubhouse was going to be using Stripe for their payment processing. So now, you know, you're hosting an, an audio chat uh, on on Clubhouse and you can get people to pay for it over Stripe. But, um, you know, it's, it's this really kind of close relationship that you get with the uh, with whether it be a content creator or like some online store. Um, you feel like you're kind of having this transaction with them and Stripe just kind of takes care of everything in the background. It's almost like, you know, trading cash. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy how all of these companies, I don't know if they've taken advantage of the fact that we're now, like, as our generation is just used to giving over our financial information, but, like, that just seems to have sort of accelerated their success. It's just this, like, public acceptance that, you know, our, our data is going to be online and they're going to have access to it. And, you know, if we want to buy stuff, then we got to give it over. So... I think that explains one of the reasons why we've we've seen such a big push into crypto is people people are really hungry for for a version of these services that is cryptographically secure that you know doesn't really know much about you but is able to give you the same kind of service. James, you mentioned cryptocurrency. I just read your story about cryptocurrency on Pitchbook News and Analysis. Uh, shameless plug. Uh, what do you what are you seeing in terms of venture capital interest? right now in the crypto space, and I guess maybe more broadly, if I'm putting this correctly, the blockchain space. I mean, it seems like they're getting more money and more deals. Yeah, no, they set a, they set a record in, in the first quarter uh, for, you know, deal value. And it's, you know, really driven by this rise in the price of Bitcoin. You know, this is a phenomenon that investors have been pointing to. Um, Andreessen Horowitz has talked about it uh, extensively. You know, there's this this Bitcoin price innovation cycle phenomenon where the price of Bitcoin goes up, people get really interested into it, in, in it, developers flock to it and they start building new things and they get funding. What was interesting to me now is, you know, if you look at 2018, the last time Bitcoin, you know, had a real big boom and we'll say it a bust, what you got out of it was a lot of these exchanges, you know, a lot of the venture activity was going into buying and selling uh, cryptocurrencies. But what's interesting this time around is that it's it's not it's still a lot of it is still kind of related to trading cryptocurrencies, but it's actually um, expanded a lot more. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we've, we've seen obviously. I think the the best example of this is the rise of NFTs. Can you explain to me what NFTs are? Not to put you Absolutely on the spot. Absolutely not. But <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. No, I, so non. Uh, it stands for non fungible token, right? Yes, it does. 
Yeah, and so um, if you remember economics 101, journalism major, fungible things can be kind of freely exchanged. A a, a one dollar US bill is 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 fungible, but an NFT is not. I think your econ 101 professor would be would be proud of that of that response. Yeah, so so basically, you can't. It's not interchangeable. So every dollar is just like every other dollar functionally. Um, You know, with an NFT. You get there often there's not just one of them, but there might only be a hundred of them. It's kind of like a limited edition thing. So it's really attracted passionate collectors who think that these things are going to be worth buckets one day. And and I know your sports fan, uh, NBA top shots, you know, highlight reels of basketball players have been selling for absolutely insane amounts. Yeah, yeah. I I have a whole section of this podcast that I want to dedicate to just ranting about about Top Shot and why it is ridiculous to spend thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars to, you know, spend money on a highlight. They're selling highlights to each other that, that you could watch for free on, on SportsCenter. So I, I don't get the idea that it's like a, you know, a finite resource because you could easily access it, or at least to me. So I, but, you know, I don't quite understand what the value is, but you know, I'm 30 now. Maybe, maybe the game has passed me by, you know, like, um, because yeah, people are investing millions of dollars into top shot. Mark Cuban's the huge NFT bull. And actually my favorite band, uh, Kings of Leon, they sold their latest record as an NFT, which is, uh, interesting because, you know, a lot of musicians are trying to take some power away from studios and and put more money into their own pockets. So I do kind of like it from that, you know, sort of as a, as a resource there, but yeah, selling, selling NBA highlights to each other. I I, I don't get, but who knows? One of the things you hit on there, it can explain at least some of the reason why people are, are kind of joining the bandwagon for NFTs. It's that you kind of get this relationship to the to the artist or the athlete that you don't get when you're, you know, at a merch shop in, in the stadium, Mm -hmm. you know, you know that your money's going directly to them and it kind of is this, is this way for you to transact really on a one-to-one basis. I agree with you though. I mean, this is, this is kind of the, the existential question of the digital age. It's like, how do you create scarcity in a world where anything can be replicated ad nauseum, but you know, you put up a wall, (laughs) (laughs) you make it, you make it unavailable to many. I mean, that's what, you know, that's our business model here at PitchBook. You know, we don't make this stuff free, except for this podcast. You're right. free, Adam. Right. And hey, yeah, exactly. I totally agree with like not giving away content. But if the content is available everywhere, then I, I don't understand how you justify it. But if there's a market there that, some you know, people who are smarter than me understand, then, then so be it. Um, I'll never forget the story in the Wall Street Journal this past year of the kid sitting in his like gym shorts and tank top with his cat on his lap who had made millions of dollars selling selling highlights uh, on top shot and had made just a killing during the pandemic and i was just it made me james it made me question what what i'm doing with my life and I, why i didn't think of this as somebody yeah. who's watched thousands of thousands of hours of sports center why didn't i think let's let's make this into a commodity and sell it sell it on the blockchain <laughs> well it's not it's not too late, you know, get, get laser eyes and jump in. Yeah, diamond hands, diamond hands. Yeah, well, James, as much as I could obviously rant about me missing out on my, my crypto 
top shot opportunity. Uh, we do need to transition. Um, Rohit, in his conversation with uh, PitchBook Emerging Tech Analyst Paul Condra, uh, they went pretty deep into what a post-pandemic work environment is going to look like in terms of you know whether that's going to be in the office, whether that's going to be remote, uh, whether it's going to be a mix of the two, and you know how that's how the how the corporate world is going to change. So let's listen to a clip. Yeah, so so I would say you know we're we're talking about the startup ecosystem here specifically, right? Which which is quite different than maybe corporate America writ large. And and I think the contextual yeah. thing to note is um, a lot of startups were already having this debate about whether to go remote um, and 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 before COVID. And, and the reasons were, you know, many of them are located in tier one cities that are very expensive and getting more and more expensive, at, at least before COVID, from a rent and a salary and sort of a cost of living uh, perspective. And, and you would literally be paying two or three times what you would uh, in another city in America for uh, an engineer or a salesperson uh, just to help them make, you know, ends meet, so to speak, in, in, in those cities. And so um, th- there's some interesting puts and takes here, but, but I would say on the whole, you know, there's obviously a distribution of perspectives. The folks who have had the warmest embrace of wanting to go full remote coming out of this, I think, are those who are pretty strong zealots for going remote before COVID. Um, and so in that sense, you know, like anything else, COVID has been an acceleration right. of the conviction. Um, the validation, right. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, and then there's a large bucket in the middle that's thinking about some kind of hybrid setup. But I don't think anyone has a great answer for what that looks like yet. I think the level of specificity, even among people who are thinking about this every day, is oh, maybe we'll have one to two days a week, you know, where people come in for specific events, for team building. Uh, maybe maybe we'll have modular and flexible office space where nobody will have an assigned desk or office anymore, but it'll just sort of be rent as you go uh, or, or sort of check in, check out um, and basically turn, you know, commercial real estate into more uh, of like a shared working space. Um, but But I don't, because some people need to get out of the house, they have small children, you know, all the stuff that we're all intimately familiar with now, nine months into Zoom uh into zoom life and so uh but 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 you know that's kind of a big messy middle i would say that's trying to figure it out um no one is in a hurry i would say to to go back uh and then the last thing i would say is there's an incredibly small percentage that think uh, and want to go back to the office full-time um i i would say you know we've had thousands of conversations this year with entrepreneurs and there's probably you know low double digits who are very keen on going back to the the way things were and asking people to take, you know, public transit and travel the way they used to and and all of that. All right, James. So what are you seeing in your reporting about how companies are looking at how we work? Yeah. I mean, I think the short answer is nobody really knows uh, what it's going to look like for the next year, uh, let alone beyond that. You know, I've I've obviously heard, as you have, you know, there are companies that are going to go fully remote. They're going to be companies, you know, here in Seattle, we have Amazon wants to bring everyone back into the office. Even PitchBook is is planning to do that. I think hopefully by the end of the year. Uh, but for most companies, it's it's going to be a hybrid approach, and that's actually a lot harder than it sounds um, because it means that everyone's going to be looking for that sort of Goldilocks situation where they've got just the right amount of flexibility and and they still maintain that in office culture without wasting a ton of real estate. Um, and I think one thing that, uh, and I reported on this recently, um, is that you're seeing a lot of startups trying to solve this problem of, you know, how do we get data on what people are actually doing in the office so that we can understand what the kind of offices that we need going forward. And, you know, 
a lot of these tools are have, have been available for a while. We've got desk reservation systems, uh, meeting room reservation systems, visitor sign-ins, package delivery systems. But now they're all kind of being put together into uh, a suite that kind of, you know, sends a dashboard to the higher ups and they can kind of see in real time, like, like what is actually happening in their office and, and how it's being utilized. Uh, but the next phase of this, and this is where it gets really interesting, is they're starting to develop sensors, and these are luckily uh, not cameras. <laughs> they, <laughs> I was say, uh, this, is good. this can't lead to anything good. So, um, yeah, th- there was a massive hack uh, recently, um, of course, where a lot of, of, of video cameras uh, were were compromised um, at some some major, uh, I think, both corporations and, and government facilities, and maybe jails, but. You know what? What's, what these startups are doing is they're using sensors. They can detect bodies in space, kind of shapes, so they can see how the space is being used at any moment in time. But they're not gathering any data on the individuals in that space. And okay. That's an important distinction. But what it allows you to do is to really see, like, oh, this, these are the areas that are being heavily utilized, lightly utilized. This is where we need to shift people to, and. The theory, and you know, it has yet to be proven, is that you can get a lot more bang for your buck if you take this approach. Like, you can get exactly mm-hmm. the amount of office space that your employees want to use, and not, you know, as has been the case for millennia, one head per or one desk per head. Right. Right. Yeah, you'd have to think too that like the open office, you know, environment, which has been so in vogue over over the past decade, is going to be changed. You know, whether it's I, I don't think it'll be people going back to their, you know, own office, but it's either going to have to be more spread out or something creative is going to have to happen uh, in order to, in order to make it work. You would you would think. And as a writer, I, I would be OK with that, with with more space to my to myself. I just have to say, you, you know, as the person who who sat literally next to you <laughs> <laughs> before the pandemic hit, I I personally t- I take that very personally. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. It wasn't you. You were very quiet too, for the most part, and, and and polite. But there is, you know, something nice. Maybe I'm. I still read print newspapers, so maybe I'm somewhat old fashioned. But there is something nice about having like your own isolated area when you're really trying to to bear down and and write. But James, for all of these startups that began during the pandemic in a in a remote environment. Are you thinking that they're going to come back into the office once this is all over? Yeah, the thing that I'm hearing uh, from investors, you know, that for their as far as their portfolio companies go, is generally if a company was started as a fully remote workforce, they're not really going to go to an in-office culture. They might, you know, have an office in the future, but you know, I think if if you kind of have those roots as a distributed workforce, you're probably going to stick with them. James, during the pandemic, we saw a lot of venture capital investors divert more of their capital into late stage private companies, you know, that were more established while the younger startups were fighting for kind of the scraps. Um, Have we started to see that trend shift yet or is it still tough sledding for the early stage startups? We've definitely seen, you know, angel, seed, early stage all bounce back really strong, you know, after a a significant dip, um, you know, Post March last year, and and you know I was I was talking to Kretsu Forum, you know a, a big angel network. Uh, they do both early stage and late stage, um, but you know I I think one thing that 
the the early stage folks are, are really looking forward to, and this is probably true across the board, but you know, they they want to get back out there and they want to start meeting founders face to face and they want to start working with founders um more intimately. I think this has been definitely been a difficult um year for that segment of the market. But, you know, we saw recently with Y Combinator, they were able to pull off a really successful event, totally online, really well managed, great platform, um, got a lot of deals done. You know, so they've adapted really well. I think a lot of the things they've learned are they're going to bring through into um, the post-pandemic era. But, um, you know, I, I think there are also a lot of investors, especially young investors who don't have the network of their more established peers who want to start getting out there, want to start making connections, um, having lunch with people, really connecting in a way that they can't over Zoom. Um, and I think that should be all serve the, uh, the early stage world really well. Yeah, it's nice to see that it's, you know, finally bouncing back a little bit after, you know, what was really a rough few months for early stage startups, you know, first time fundraisers, anybody who is just entering the game. So uh, we'll be sure to have you have you back on and to discuss some of those companies here in the next few months. Um, James, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Invisible Capital. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to give us a sterling review on your preferred streaming platform. And for more relevant materials about today's show, visit pitchbook.com slash podcast. I'm Adam Lewis. Until next time. Invisible Capital is a production of Pitchbook. Executive produced by Kai Yao. Hosted by Alexander Davis and Adam Lewis. Cover art by Landon Early. Subscribe to Invisible Capital on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit pitchbook.com slash podcast. Pitchbook.